verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way and though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though the waters, its waters roar and foam and though mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he brought desolation on the earth, and he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, and burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, this evening we come to behold the works of the Lord, to be reminded in song and scripture and prayer and in preaching of Christ, our great Savior who has come to us to rescue us from our greatest trouble, sin. We ask now that you would turn our hearts to the Lord, help us to remove distraction, help us, Lord, to lay aside every weight that uh, hinders us, and to look to Christ. We pray, Lord, that you will bless our service this evening with the joy of worship as we sing his praises, which he is due forever and ever. We pray, Lord, that you will help raise our affections for him. We pray, Lord, that you will instruct us in what he has accomplished for us. We pray also, Lord, that you will lead us in obedience to Jesus. For he is not only our Savior, but he is our great Lord and King. All things should be given unto him, not only our praise, but our lives as living sacrifices, as living praise. We pray, Lord, that this evening Jesus would be exalted in our midst. We ask for your spirit to help. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Hosea 8, verse 7. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Hosea 10, 13. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. I don't know about you, but I feel like I live in a whirlwind. Uh, part of it has to do with the uncertainty that comes in a day. And part of it is our culture's endless striving 
for what the world labels as progress, which often shrouds itself as the newest version or the latest trend. If you have version 14.3, we are told that it will most certainly be vulnerable to disease, malware, and scoffing if by the following Tuesday 14.9 isn't promptly installed. I think I have something like three different clouds and three different drive folders and all different devices that all hold innumerable folders titled very important that all remain unsynced and on the knife's edge of a pending subscription upgrade or else I face the lose-it-all consequence. You might say this is a me problem and I wouldn't outright deny it, but mostly I think it boils down to the world that we live in where bottomless storage and keeping your head above the waters of progress is considered a virtuous place to be. It is a comforting thought, to say the least, that scripture doesn't need updates, that Jesus himself uses simple pictures and images that even a child can understand, parables and stories that the modern man scoffs at. They are simple in form, but deep and endless in substance and truth. Take, for example, the sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. It's simple, you see. A godless society and culture thinks that adding more will on will make us more of a sheep. But the fact remains that we are still that stupid wandering sheep at heart. And no amount of wool can change that. Or take the idea of the farmer, as we have seen through our opening verse in Hosea. Oh, sorry, in Jeremiah, which speaks of the sowing of wind and the reaping of whirlwinds. You see, you and I are like farmers, and our very being and substance is that of a field or a plot of land. There is only one way to true progress. There is only one way to a good harvest, and there is only one way to God. And thankfully, it is laid out very simply for us. Jeremiah 4.4 4 says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. A farmer who rightly sees his task will aim to sow seed that will grow into a bountiful harvest. A sincere farmer does not let his hand, sorry, his land sit fallow. That is a field plowed, but not yet sown. For a plowed field will only reap for that which was in the ground already. And in the case of an unkept land, the seeds and remnants of noxious weeds and thistles. Nor will he plant the seed in the midst of the intruders or scattered upon unplowed lands. Isaiah speaks clearly about this when we read, When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? If we are in Christ this evening then our being in substance is marked by the deep trough and groove of a plowed field, both of his forgiveness and his grace. As we have read, it isn't enough to simply leave it as such. If our days are marked by sowing seeds of worldly ambitions and whirlwind seeding, then there is great danger at hand. The grace of God teaches and shows us that there is a difference between purple globe thistles and cobs of corn. Repentance is the means by which harvest comes. Repentance, obedience, and harvest is that work of pulling weeds from the roots and sowing seed that produces profitable and good fruit. 
There is no such thing as a farmer's market for the Christian, whereby Sunday mornings and evenings we stroll on down and fill our basket with someone else's hard labor. And that's in regards to repentance. It is a work of necessity for every Christian. There is no living that comes without first the dying to oneself. But we also know that it is not a crushing yoke of toil, this planting and pruning, weeding and sowing. If Christ is ours and his death is our death, and his living is our living, then take courage, for our baskets shall be full. Christ is Lord of the harvest. Hosea 10, 11 to 13, as I close. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Let us come now in confession before him. Forgive us, Lord, for our whirlwind seeding, our complacency in not tending to the fields of our souls. Lord, forgive us for casting seeds of doubt into the winds and of our faithlessness in the midst of the harvest, for our grumbling and our prayerless hearts. We thank you, Lord, that the sun shines and the rain falls in its season, that your word does not come back to you void, but will accomplish that for which it was sent. We pray that the words of truth would be rooted deeply in our hearts this day and that we would rejoice in the forgiveness and mercy of Christ Jesus, who is Lord of the harvest. May we swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him and in him shall they glory. Amen. We'll call up the ushers now to pass out the offering. And as a reminder, this is a time which God has given to us to offer and give back to God the fruits of our labor. Let us remember also that it is better to give than to receive, and that this would simply serve as a reminder that our whole lives are that of a gracious gift. He is our Heavenly Father, and how much does He delight to give His children good gifts, and how worthy He is to receive all glory and blessing. Let's commit it to the Lord as well. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So we pray that our seeds of gratefulness in the form of our Canadian currency would cause righteousness and praise to go forth from this building, so that in you we will ever glory. And let it be so. Amen.
Jesus, we come to you as your disciples did, and we, we ask that you would teach us to pray. Lord, we may have been Christians for many years, and yet we, when we come to you, our heart uh, often fails. We are distracted or anxious about many things. Um, we don't know what to pray for, or we come carelessly and haphazardly and not with the reverence you deserve. Um, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have provided not only your word, which guides us towards the priorities that we should pray for, but we thank you for the provision of your spirit, who is the comforter and who helps us in all of our weaknesses and even in the weakness of prayer. 
We come to you this evening and we acknowledge that you are our Father in heaven. You are not simply a cold and distant and transcendent being that is not aware of our trial and suffering. That you are a father who delights to hear the prayers of his children. And not only hear, but delights to provide for us. When we come to you in our weakness and our, in our need, you draw near. We thank you, Lord, that you are a father, and that is an amazing thing. Um, it seems almost a, a presumptuous title, but it is not because your word declares that those who have been cleansed in the blood of Jesus are indeed your adopted children. We can come to you as a father. And yet we also learn that you are our father in heaven. Um, you are high and holy and lifted up, as we have sung about. Your glory is displayed in the heavens. Um, help us, Lord, to serve you with fear and trembling, not the slavish fear of an abused servant, but the reverence with which you deserve. We thank you that through Christ, your holiness your righteousness is not an obstacle for us, although we are a sinful people, that we are a wayward and turning people. Lord, we thank you that we, through Christ, uh, can come into the Holy of Holies and to address you as Father. Lord, we do hallow and revere your name this evening as the king of kings, as the one who is arrayed above all earthly rulers and nations. Indeed, as the one who directs all the plans and the counsels and the rulings of, of those. Lord, we, we do lift up our, our leaders to you. Though we have strayed from your word, and we have strayed from acknowledging you as God and we are now receiving the consequences of rulers who do not affirm you. So we pray that you would bring them to repentance, that you would bring them to submit to the Son, lest they perish in his way. Or, Lord, that you would remove them. Lord, we, we long to see, obviously, local re revival, but a, a national revival of those who... Um, no longer trust in their idols, but trust in the one who was died, one who has died and yet has been raised and who reigns. Lord, we pray that your spirit would cause a, a work of repentance in our day, such as perhaps has never been seen, that as your word is proclaimed, um, as the truth of Jesus Christ is exalted, Lord, that you would bring in your sheep that you would cause a, a massive wave of, of humility and repentance to bring us to our knees, both young and old, both rich and poor, both those in government and those in blue-collar trades, all need to bow and acknowledge that Christ is Lord. And we cannot make not such an acknowledgement apart from the work of your Spirit. So we pray on behalf of our nation, 
that you would come and do a mighty work in our day. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come. We know that it has been advancing these many centuries. It has never been silent. It has never been dormant. It has always been advancing. And we pray that we would see a mighty work of advancement. Um, we are only a breath. Our life is, is so short, 70 or 80 years, Lord. But we do pray that we would, in our day, see things turn around. People would abandon their sin uh, and, and call out to you and be saved. Um, we are a nation full of wickedness. The blood of thousands and thousands of children is on our hands. And, um, and there will be worse things than these if we do not repent. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, Lord, let there be repentance. We thank you for your daily provision. And some days we feel perhaps that it won't be enough. Some days there are trials and sufferings that feel overwhelming and too great to be overcome. And, and they are in our own strength. Which is why we must come to you and cry out for your provision. And you are happy to supply us. Paul could say, whether I abound or I have little, I can rejoice. And we can rejoice because your provision is always enough. We thank you for your rod and your staff that comfort and protect us even in the midst of the valleys of the shadow of death. And not only that you provide a little, but that you pre prepare a table for us in the midst of our enemies. So I pray, Lord, for those this evening who perhaps are, are looking with dread at the beginning of another week, not knowing how to, not just to get through, but to, to honor you in their lives, though perhaps they have little strength. I pray that you would comfort these, that you would draw near to them. There is no one who has ever trusted you, who has ever been abandoned. We may be faithless, but you are faithful. And we thank you, Lord, that um, you have never left those who seek you. We pray that you would draw near those who are struggling. Lord, uh, be with us this evening uh, as we are once again in, in this wonderful book of Proverbs. Uh, be with Alex as he brings us the word and that you would help us, uh, even as, as you said for us to pray, lead us not into temptation as we um, get into this specific book, Lord, that you would give us insight into the, the snares and the deceits of sin and the traps of the devil, that we would be able to discern sin at its outset and put it to death. Lord, we pray for our church that we would grow in holiness, in maturity, in love for Christ, in love for his word, in hatred for sin. Uh, you must do these things, Lord, and we pray uh, that you would. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, if you have your Bible, you can actually turn, I'm going to pull an audible this week, and um, turn to Isaiah 40. I'm going to read verses 28 to 31 for our sermon text. Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. Have you not known and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your spirit and your word that you give strength to the weak and to the weary. And we pray that you would supply strength to us now. For Jesus' sake, amen. My sermon is entitled, Strength to the Weary. Um, There have been two objects of observation that have led me to this passage and this week's sermon text. Uh, The first, more generally, has been the surrounding culture and just the conversations that I've been listening to Uh, regarding the reality and supposed solution for human weakness. And so I've, I've heard the same kind of conversation happen enough times in enough places. It makes me think that this is, that there are loud voices speaking to this theme. Uh, and so we need to be applying scripture to this area. Uh, What is this conversation? Well, on the one hand, we as people, especially men, are encouraged to be weak. We are encouraged to be passive, silent, risk-avoidant, compliant little collective of slaves. The good people are those who play within the rules, which aren't the same as God's moral law, but are rather the laws of men who subject their conscience to those in power and to the mob, and who don't cause trouble. To be such a person is to abandon all moral strength and responsibility that God has endowed us with, that God has entrusted us with. It is to sear our conscience through disobedience, most often the disobedience of failing to do the things that we ought to do, even if in our mind we're not doing the things that we ought not to do. The result of this cultural experiment is what Lewis referred to as men without chests, moral geldings. And when he wrote these words, he was speaking about education. And so there are multiple generations since this point who have been raised in the same soup 
and encouraged to be the same kind of people without conscience. And we are reaping the fruit of that. Even being physically strong, setting aside morality, even being physically strong, once the hallmark of masculinity is demonized. There was actually an article this past year that was titled something like, Why Strength Training is Toxic Masculinity. (laughs) Uh, There's a demonization of physical strength. According to these people, the worst thing for the world is strong men. One of the simplest tests for whether or not you live in this environment is whether or not you can say whatever you feel to be is true. I should say whatever is true. And if there's a time or a place or a people that make you nervous to tell the truth around you, then you are living in a morally repressive environment. This is the most obvious function of human resource departments in most places these days. They are ideological enforcement agencies. They hold power over the things that we need most, the ability to provide. Um, So what I'm saying is that the spirit of the age that is one that actively encourages weakness and demonizes true strength. But, and the reason for this sermon, what I have noticed lately is the ever-growing response to this demand for moral, spiritual, and physical weakness is increasingly characterized by a distorted or incomplete view of strength. And so I think, I hopefully, when, you, when I just read that introduction of my assessment of the kind of environment we live in that encourages weak people, hopefully everyone's just like, yes, that's patently obvious. But maybe what you've seen as well is that there is a response to this moral castrating of people. And it is to pursue a kind of strength that is not strength. And, we've, and throughout history, this, has been the, this is what happens. History, as Luther said, is, you know, the story of a drunk falling off one side of the road and then falling off onto the other side of the road, right? It's a reaction. And as Christians, we need to not be um, led by a reaction to error. We need to be led by the compass of truth, which is Scripture. And we see this kind of sham of strength. Uh, especially in uh, men who are trying to combat this. And, and they're, they're often right about their analysis of what's going wrong. They're not, I would agree with a lot of what's said about what's wrong in culture. But their solution is no solution. And this is becoming very, very prevalent. So I want to talk about what does it mean to be strong? Uh, the second object of observation, I said there were two, has been my own life and circumstances. So first, I have brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters, friends in this congregation and elsewhere who have been afflicted with various forms of physical weakness, life-threatening illness, chronic illness. In either case, their physical strength has been seriously diminished and those who love and care for them feel intimately acutely this weakness as well. Recently, I've had to process the reality of ongoing physical weakness as well. And the question that has come to me 
as, and it came to me more this week as I was laying in bed, was am I and are we able to live a faithful life if we remain weak? So most of you know that I, you know, I reject this culture of weakness and this intention to make people, especially men, weak. And I believe the Bible said the glory of a young man is his strength. And um, I believe that, you know, training, athletic training is of some value, as Paul said. You know, I have a, I have a rack in my basement and lots of guys have come through there to get stronger. I, I believe that that's good. I believe that's a noble, even a necessary pursuit as you are able. And I think that we should continue to pursue that. Uh, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and the best we are able to steward that, better. Not only for us, for other people. I also think that the responsibilities that God has given men in particular require strength. Physically, morally, spiritually, this type of thing. So I am for strength. But what I've been wrestling with is thinking through how do you live in weakness? And it's not, I mean, I mean I'm not a, I'm not a, a no, I'm not a more than normal, I'm not above average in my strength. But I have felt more weak and I've seen more weakness in my family and my loved ones and my church family in the last couple of years than I have in a long time. And this question just hit me viscerally. And I told the elders in our meeting this week that I realized what I was doing was every time that I face weakness, what the, the story I told myself was looking to the point that I would become strong and what I would do. I mean, all the way, to, all the way back to when, like, when I got really sick and I was in the hospital. Ben, we're, I was reminiscing with Ben and Ryland, like, Ben came over to visit me, and some of you people came, and I'm literally in a chair because I can't do anything else, and I'm on oxygen, and I can't even do bodyweight squats, and I'm like, man, I can't wait to preach the Christmas service. <laughs> and, like, I genuinely believed I would get there. And My Facebook memory this week was, like, January 19th, your first week back to church. Like, I missed that by, like, a month. Like, not even close. And uh, I realized that I was just, like, dealing with my situation by looking forward to a time when I would be strong. And, you know, every workout I miss, I tell myself the same thing. It's like, okay, next week. Like, you're able to get back at it. This is your routine. This is where you're starting. These are your goals kind of thing. Or, or, or spiritually, whatever it is. And this week, for the first time, I kind of had this moment where, what if you just do not become a strong guy? What if you just do what you can, but you, you're not strong? Um, and if a brief, you know, trek through church history and in scripture shows us that many of the people who had the best, most faithful lives were just people marked by profound weakness. Paul himself, we're going to look at, asked the Lord to remove the thorn in his flesh three times. Whatever that was, we're not quite sure. It seems to be some kind of physical ailment. And the Lord said, no. And if you look at, you know, John Calvin was a man who was afflicted with extreme pain and suffering for most of his ministry. And a lot of, a lot of people were. They ministered out of their weakness. 
I want my brothers and sisters and myself to regain our strength, and I want to do my part to make that happen. But what if it doesn't? What if, like Paul, we carry our thorn in the flesh despite our pleading with God to remove it? Would we take God at his word when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness? Can we say with Paul, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can we say that? I want to offer up five points this evening to help us be able to say that. One, God is uniquely and infinitely powerful. Two, humanity is inherently frail. Three, fallen humanity tends to downplay weakness and inflate strength. Four, God saves us in a way that magnifies his strength in our weakness. And lastly, fifth, faithful Humanity embraces weakness and seeks strength from God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God is uniquely and infinitely powerful. When I say uniquely, I mean that he is the only one with this kind of power. When I say infinitely, his power knows no end. To ask rhetorically, as scripture does in Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer to that question throughout scripture is a resounding no. To say that God is all-powerful is to say that there is nothing that he can't do. This is to describe the attribute of God, which is his omnipotence. Omni meaning all, impotent meaning powerful. With God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. Or in Luke 1, 37, nothing is impossible with God. God's power is infinite, in other words, such that there is nothing that he cannot do. And he is utterly unique in this regard. And we need to keep in our minds, and scripture reinforces over and over, that God stands alone in his strength. Because if we lose sight of the strength of God, then we will look for it somewhere else. And we will untether ourselves from the very source of strength by which we were meant to live and move and have our being, the scriptures say. Humanity was not created self-reliant, but necessarily dependent upon an omnipotent God. A God who can do all things. One of the consequences for us is that we are not expected to be able to do all things. 
Have you noticed beneath a lot of the ads for products and programs is the promise that you can be strong. And there's a sense, again, that we need to pursue strength as a matter of stewardship, as a matter of glorifying God in our bodies, as a matter of being the most used and helped other people, etc., etc. But we need to reject the idea that man can never attain a level of strength which makes him freed, which frees him from his dependence upon God. We need to just reject that idea that as fit as we become and as strong as we become, there will be no point at which we cease to be dependent upon God. We may be less dependent upon, you know, other people for help. We may be less dependent upon uh, certain, you know, things to help us feel better. But we will never be less dependent upon God who supplies strength to all people. Never. So that's point number one. God is uniquely and infinitely powerful. Point number two, fallen humanity is inherently frail. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. The point that Isaiah is making here is that even the strongest among us is frail. To say that the, even the young men fail is to say that even the strongest among you. Who's the strongest in a population? Well, if you didn't know, it's young men. Young men are the strongest. Without a doubt, without comparison. And men are the strongest when they are young. And even those people, Isaiah says, faint and become weary and fall exhausted. And if you're a man, you perhaps you know this feeling. You know the feeling of reaching a place, whether through illness or whether through age or whatever it is, where the strength that you once knew has abandoned you. And it is, a, it is an uncomfortable feeling. It is a, it is a, it's somewhat of a humiliating feeling. We are living through, as a culture, an identity crisis. And so one of the symptoms is our denial of the inherent frailty of men. Again, behind each ad for improved health, through whatever program and product, is a promise that we can overcome our weakness, but we cannot ultimately overcome our weakness. Ecclesiastes 9.11, And again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. At the end of the day, there's no level of strength that you can achieve that makes you impervious, that makes you fully insulated from, from time and chance as the writer of Ecclesiastes said. 1 Peter 1, 24, All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. We don't live like this. We live like 
We are thousand-year-old oak trees. Impenetrable, indomitable, eternal. But we're less like thousand-year oak trees and more like blades of grass that last for a day. Psalm 39.4, O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of days, my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.43 about our bodies. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Life on this side of Christ's return is characterized by weakness. And that is because the curse still remains. Yes, the condemnation for sin has been lifted. The penalty for sin has been paid, but its presence still remains and its power is still exerted over our lives because we still die. And our children die. And our loved ones die. And our brothers and sisters die. And that is because there's something fundamentally wrong with the world. And there's something that can only be repaired when Christ returns. The practical application of this for us is that our weakness is not merely an obstacle to overcome, and especially not in our own strength, but it is a feature of our fallen existence. Our weakness is meant to be acknowledged and embraced in humility so that we can glorify God in his providing of strength. I'll read that again. Our weakness is not merely an obstacle to overcome in our strength, as if that was possible, but a feature of fallen existence. Our weakness is meant to be an meant to be acknowledged and embraced in humility so that we can glorify God in his providing of strength. And there's a, there's a, there's a vanity to boasting in your strength. And scripture warns us of this repeatedly in different ways by basically the, the, the logic is there's always a bigger dog in the fight. I mean, you think you're strong until you meet a guy like Brock Lesnar. And you know what you do when Brock Lesnar's tribe comes over the hill? You make a covenant. You form a treaty. You don't fight. There's no fight. There's no fight with 300-pound monsters with abs with 40-inch verticals. There's no fight. And everyone who thinks they're strong and their home gym and their whatever their records are, when that guy's tribe shows up, you make a treaty. Stat. I will do what you ask. I will pay what you want. Right? There's always a bigger dog in the fight. God speaks this way of empires. He speaks this way of kings. And he speaks this way of all of humanity. It is vain to think that your strength puts you above any weakness. And one of the easiest ways to find that out is to run into the bigger man or the bigger army or the bigger nation or a force of nature. Something or someone who is much bigger and much stronger than you are to remind you of your frailty. Some of us face this in life through illness and we're confronted with this in a more immediate way, but all of us should acknowledge this. However, moving on to my next point, point three, fallen humanity tends to downplay its frailty and inflate its strength. This is why the psalmist prayed that the Lord would remind him of his finiteness, of his creatureliness, remind him of the frailty 
of life. Why do you need to be reminded of the frailty of life? Because we are prone to forget it. We are prone to forget our weakness. This is a symptom of both pride and fear. Pride in an inflated view of ourself and fear for the reality of what our weakness means. No one wants to feel weak. No one wants to feel that they do not have the strength to do what they want or need to do. No one wants to be overcome. And so we're afraid and we're proud and we downplay our weakness, which is why we need to be reminded. Scripture warns repeatedly in a variety of ways of this proclivity of fallen humanity, this irrational view of ourself that downplays our weakness. Deuteronomy 8, 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. If you know the story of Israel, it, it might seem as though it is impossible for someone to say that. How could people who have experienced with their own eyes and hands and feet and lips and stomachs everything that God did for them, how can, God, how can they literally receive food from heaven how can they be delivered as slaves out of an empire and walk through a sea? And in the end, their assessment is my power and the might of my hands have gotten me here. Because this is a deceitfulness of sin. And this is what humans do. And if they were capable of doing that, who so viscerally experienced the deliverance and the power of God, how much more capable are we of this? James 4, 13, James talks about this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and your boasting is evil. James gets at the root of this refusal to acknowledge our weakness. Right? When you say, I am going to be in this town next year, you're implying that you know that you will be alive next year. 
But how do you know if you will be alive next year? Human experience ought to tell us that there's no way that we can make such an arrogant presumption. We don't know this. Instead, we should say, if the Lord wills, we will do that. This is the kind of boasting that James says is evil. It's funny, recently someone told me they just realized why after messages I write DV. It's like, I didn't explain this to them. So for, I don't know, months or a year or something, he, he always is like, why does Alex say, yeah, I'll see you later, DV? DV is Deo Valente, right? It means Lord willing. And someone taught me this in Barbados. It's like 90-year-old man. And uh, he was a godly guy. And he, he always said Deo Valente after everything. And I met this girl from the Caribbean. He used to come to Trent. And every time we dropped her off, back when I would drop her off, she'd say, I'd say, see you tomorrow, see you next week. And she'd say, if God spares my life, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which sounded really morbid, right? Like, I was like, well, are you, is there, like, is someone trying to hurt you? Like, what's going on? But, but, but really, she was just doing the same kind of thing. She's just trying to say, yeah, I'll see you next week, I think, if God allows for it. God, I don't know. Maybe I'll get hit by a car tomorrow. Maybe I'll get a cancer diagnosis. Maybe, I don't know, I'm just a human. I'm just, my life is fleeting. It's a vapor, the scripture says. I can't tell you for certain what's going to happen next week. We ought not to deny our weakness or our frailty. And we ought not to ascribe our strength and what we gain through our strength to ourselves. We should not ascribe to ourselves that which should only be ascribed to God. Fourth point, God's plan of salvation involves magnifying his power through our weakness and silencing the boasting of men. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians to highlight this point. But we see this all throughout scripture. Hosea 1.7, we read this. I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. The way that God is going to save his people is not through his people. He's not going to save his people with their strength. He's going to save his people with his strength. That's the point of that passage. We get a hint of this in the passage we looked at in Isaiah. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. There's a strength that will come upon those who wait for the Lord. They shall mount up on wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So God wants to save his people. He wants to save weak people. He wants to supply strength for weak people. He will deliver his people, but he's going to do so in a way that they will acknowledge that it is by his strength. This is explicitly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the word of cross, the word of the cross is the power of God. And now he says, Christ is the very power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the sign that the Jews are demanding is a sign that displays the strength of men. And this is why when they see the resurrected Christ, they reject the sign. And this is why Jesus tells them, you don't need another sign because even if someone was to rise from the dead, you would not believe them. You wouldn't believe them because you are looking not for the power of God. You are looking for an affirmation of the power and the wisdom and the righteousness of men. And to you, no sign will be given. But Christ is the power of God. For consider your calling, brothers. And this is where it gets to how God saves us. He works through the weak. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And this is where part of the answer comes to that question I had. Can you live a faithful life in weakness? And the answer that scripture gives is that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So yes. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why did he do it this way? Why did God choose to work through the weak and the foolish and the despised in the world? He says explicitly, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The reason that God worked the way that he worked, the reason that he saved us the way that he did, was so that we would not boast in our strength, but that we would boast in his strength and power. Ephesians 1.18 reminds us that the supreme demonstration of God's power was raising Christ from the dead. The immeasurable riches, greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the, his right hand in the heavenly places. So God is working salvation in such a way to magnify his power in our weakness. And last point, faithful humanity embraces its weakness and seeks strength from God. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As Paul prayed that the Lord would remove 
the thorn from his flesh? And the answer was no. But God did not leave him without power. God did not leave him in his weakness. God supplied him with power. When I am weak, then I am strong, he said. Why is that? Because he had access to God's power. True strength is fine, was found when we rely on the one with infinite power. This has always been God's plan for his people. Acts 1, 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The mission of the church requires power. It requires strength. It cannot be completed in total weakness. But the point is, the power that the church needs for his mission, the power that you need in your life, can only be supplied by God. That is the point. And you only receive the power that can only be supplied by God when you acknowledge your weakness. That is the only point. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Strong people don't wait on the Lord. Only people who are weak wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord means to acknowledge your need. Paul drives home in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So being strong is a command. Again, what I'm advocating for and what Scripture advocates for is not that we are totally weak, but that we acknowledge our human weakness so that we could have, that we could be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How do we do that? He goes on to say, putting on the whole armor of God, that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The point that he makes, which I said earlier, is that you are in a battle, and unless you have strength that God supplies, you will be completely overcome. You, you have no chance over the authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. None of us has a shot Anywhere over any of these forces. Unless we're strong in the Lord. And the strength that he supplies. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. God wants to supply his people strength. His people are in need of strength. God wants us to recognize our need for his strength. Then you will see his power. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. Jesus Christ, who is the display of your power. And we thank you that you strengthen the weak. We pray that you would strengthen us, Lord, to be faithful to you, to glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.